you know, Jesus says that, that, the, that this power and will mindset is, is the wrong way. I and mean, he, he, he almost flips it upside down and, and says, you know, we, we have, have it backwards. You know, we, where, where true power is found is through love and service and sacrifice. This, 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 this Let's be honest, talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. Uh, I say it all the time. It's my pleasure. Um, it is always so fun to talk about the big issues, to talk, to let you know what's going on in my life, the things that I've been thinking about. Uh, Tactical Faith is an extension, really, of my curiosity into the world of ideas. Now, I'm not a PhD. You know, I have an MDiv and I have a DMIN, a very practical guy. Um, but I've always grown up loving ideas, loving being around people that were smarter than me and into issues and and things that I don't necessarily spend a lot of time in. But, you know, I have dabbled in the area of philosophy, not as much as the two guys I'm about to bring on, uh, but enough to at least, uh, you know, make make some pretty big mistakes. Uh, but Tactical Faith is, is, is an organization that is curious. It's curious about our faith. It's a curious about other people's faith. Uh, we're trying to promote the Christian faith as a true worldview, because I believe it's the only worldview that helps us to flourish. Um, but the guys that I usually, and gals that we usually bring on with the podcast and who I surround myself with in my nonprofit are people who take ideas seriously. And these two gentlemen that I'm going to bring on do that. They're the kind of people that think about things and are actually PhDs in their fields in philosophy. And they actually write and do things for tactical faith about, I don't know, six or seven months ago. Uh, Travis, who is on our board, um, Dr. Travis on our board, decided, he said, you know, I got a, a friend of mine and we want to start a podcast. And that podcast, and I'm going to let them talk about it, was called Wondering in Wisdom. Toward wisdom. Wondering Towards Wisdom. And it's on our website at tacticalfaith.com where they discuss issues of philosophy and how they can boil it down to lay people while also keeping it, you know, at a level that's somewhat scholarly and academic. So I have Joel Shorts with me and Travis Koblenz with me. Uh, give a little intro, Travis, about who you are and what you're trying to do on that podcast, which, is, by the way, is Tactical Faith sponsored. Yes, it's a Tactical Faith podcast. So, yeah, I'm, I'm Travis Koblenz, and I am on the board of Tactical Faith. Uh, I, uh, just like Joel, uh, which he can introduce himself shortly, but I got my Ph.D. from Baylor in philosophy. I was a pastor a little, a little while before that, and... Uh, uh, what we're trying to do with the podcast is really an extension of what Joel and I uh, tend to do, try to do in our classes. And every time uh, when we teach about this and talk about this and think about this, is that uh, we want to take the philosophical ideas and not not talk about them merely in an academic way, but try to encourage, uh, I guess, a growth in wisdom. And so, and a lot of that involves. It's in the name, wandering toward wisdom. And we, we have an underscore where the O or the A would be in wondering um, because kind of it's it's related to being in wonder. And it also, there's a sense in which we're kind of 
feeling our way around, trying to understand, uh, trying to understand the world that God has given us, uh, how he would have us grow. And so the, the, uh, the podcast is a mix of, uh, we, we do a lot of dealing with particular philosophers. Um, but we also pull from Christian tradition and we pull, obviously we try to keep it within the realm of, uh, what we might call mere Christianity. We, we draw from scriptures and so on and so forth. And we try to, we try to draw them all together in a way that is, again, just like Matt said, is academically sound and you can learn something from it, uh, but also is hopefully understandable to the average person. Good. What about you, Joel? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Joel Schwartz. And uh, like Travis said, uh, did my PhD in philosophy at Baylor University. Um, and uh, Travis and I are actually related, but we it was when we were at Baylor that we uh, hung out a lot and we wrote our dissertations together at Starbucks <laughs> and spent more time talking about deep philosophical issues than we probably did writing our dissertation. Um, but our conversations have always had this element of looking at philosophy as a love of wisdom rather than this academic exercise that it often can become. And um, we're, we're, our conversations are always trying to figure out what, what does wisdom look like? What does it mean to live live a live wisely um how does that reflect um god um how does that reflect the image of god within us and and how what does that mean for for how we interact with with other people and um we've spent so many so much time talking about it we're like well it would be kind of fun to have a podcast where we can offer these thoughts to people while also pushing ourselves to to um to find that that good mix of academic uh, integrity, um, you know, pulling from from uh, sources across the Christian tradition, from Scripture to the Church Fathers to uh, contemporary theologians, um, but also with the with the, the persistent eye to how does this affect my life? What does this mean for how I live? Um, because at, at the end of the day, if, if it doesn't change the way you live your life, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure how much value it, it really has uh, beyond an intellectual exercise. So I'm, we're, me and Travis both would be considered kind of late Gen Xers, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're not necessarily millennial yet. But um, the change that I have seen in the Deep South is in – a little bit of probably what's been going on in the other parts of the country for a long time. There's no social capital for going to church anymore. Like socially speaking, I mean, you're not, um, there's very little advantages. There are probably more in the South than there would be anywhere else. And why is that key? What's key is uh, when it, when there was more of a social capital to being a member of a church, you could hide, just go to church, do your thing. And you could be a different kind of person right during the week. Um, cause nobody, the expectation was you do these things, you're, you're quote unquote Christian. But as those things change, I think our generation is seeing, um, <clears throat> more people who are no longer, uh, affected by Christianity that way. Like it, in, in other words, it's more apparent now if you're not living out the worldview, the Christian worldview. Um, so for us, we want, we see a disconnect or a growing disconnect between, saying something or thinking something and living a certain way 
there it seems to be a disconnect with most people like why are you worshiping here but it has little effect in the life that you live when you leave the church right mm-hmm. at least that's what's going on in my head when i think about these issues as somebody that likes apologetics and that's trying to apply apologetics evangelistically with people to call them to king jesus and why he's meaningful for for me it's not an intellectual enterprise only it's a call to actually like you said live it out uh, so let me tell you a story, and then we're going to go into a topic that I think it's fun um, in terms of believability. Um, I went to a church. I'm not going to name the church, but it was pretty currently within the last couple of months. I went to a church, very rural. Um, it's one of those places that still has social capital to go to either the Baptist church or the Methodist church that's next door. Right? That, it's that kind of small town. Um, as I'm preaching, I realize uh, something's amiss. Now, I'm not saying every time I preach, there should be pew jumping. (laughs) My expectation at a Southern Baptist church, I know when people are in it and when they're not in it. But these people, while not overtly charismatic, were at the edge of their seat because I was speaking in a different kind of way. Um, But after it was over, I had a, sometimes this happens where people will come in and ask me questions about where did you get that from? I've never heard the scripture preached like that before. And then, but there was one conversation that I had with somebody who was this, well, I can't tell you this because it's my wife will listen. She'll know exactly what I'm talking about, <laughs> where I'm talking about. But this particular church, I, this person was asking me these questions and I realized, oh my goodness, you say you're a Christian, but really the, your framework, the, your worldview that you're working from is very secular. <laughs> when I mean secular, it means uh, there's a disconnect between you saying, Jesus is my savior and really have the framework of your belief system is not that at all. What Charles Taylor would call imminent frame, like something is bubbling up in you and it's not Christian because of culture and you growing up. I mean, this person was talking about, well, I feel guilty because of X. And I was like, what are you feeling guilty about? And the more we talked about it, I thought, oh, because that's bubbling out of something that you're not even conscious of. Right. And it's that kind of framework that really kind of caught my attention. <laughs> what? Tell me a little bit about what you know about Charles Taylor and the idea that what does secular sound like and what does it mean to believe in Christianity in a over or an ever increasing secular world? Yeah, you Are you to me I'm looking Joel? straight at you. Okay. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Nobody um, can see me staring straight at you. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, I don't, I do, to be honest, I haven't read Charles Taylor. Um, uh, do I call him Charlie? Um, call him Charlie. Yeah. Uh, I've read a little bit of James K. Smith's, uh, summary, uh, of his book. Um, so maybe I should hand this over to Joel. Joel, have you read? I have not. Okay. Have oh my not. goodness. So this is embarrassing. Okay. So let's, let's go back. We all, we, we know at least the idea that maybe we're all functioning with a shared cultural kind of framework. Yes. We'll go with yes. that way. Yes. And what I would yes. say is for those who don't know who Charles Taylor is, go find him out, go find that book that you just mentioned and read about him. Because what it did bring to mind for me, who is not philosophically minded like you two are, we all function with some sort of framework mm-hmm. subconsciously yeah. and consciously. Yeah. And, right. you know, in the world that I'm in, it would be called that's your worldview. But I think it's more than just worldview. I think it, it goes. It goes deeper, deeper right? That, because yeah. the worldview, the whole worldview Schaefer and apologetic is still too much. It's still too intellectual. Like all you have to do is change propositional knowledge and then things will change. Yes. This this seems to be like that issue with the guy you were talking about. 
Um, part of the issue is that we we believe that that to believe in Christianity is to possess is to uh, to affirm a certain set of propositions. Um, and we know it's more than that. We know you have to change your life. So you have a set of propositions that you hold to, and you have a set of ethical claims that you adhere to that you you try to live up to. But it's the framework remains the same framework as the world around us. Um, and this is, in fact, Joel and I kind of in the uh, uh, the infancy of our. I mean, we're still kind of in the infancy of the podcast. But we we began by talking about how values, in fact, frame our worldview, and that. Uh, I don't know if Joel wants to, wants to pick up here, but um, uh, maybe maybe I can throw maybe I can throw one of my areas of uh, expertise out for a second. Um, but I focused on Nietzsche and Plato uh, in my dissertation, and one of the one of the famous things about Nietzsche is that he claims that God is dead. And in the famous story of the madman, um, this madman comes out in the bright morning with a lantern lit and starts saying he's looking for God, looking for God. And the people are laughing at him. And he says, uh, I know where God is. Basically we've killed God or God is dead. And we have, we have killed him. And he's speaking in that, in that, that, uh, kind of parable. He's speaking to a bunch of intellectual atheists and he turns to them and said, we have killed God. And the idea is obviously he's not talking about crucifying Jesus or actually killing God. He's talking about, destroying our capacity to believe in God. And uh, for Nietzsche, the belief in God was very closely connected with the kind of ethics that we hold. And his view was that ethics itself, or our whole sense of not just ethics, I think it goes beyond that with Nietzsche, all of axiology kind of falls apart once God, once God is killed. So once all of our value systems that give, give shape to the world, that put the propositions, that connect the propositions in the proper way, um, those are all gone. And so you may hold a set of propositions about you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. But once you've left, left God out, it's like the framework that holds those in place is gone. And you're just living off the vet. You're living off of what's left over of God. Um, uh, he would probably look at Sam Harris's book, for example, uh, Moral Landscape, and say Sam Harris is just living off the, uh, the ethical capital that's left over from belief in God. <laughs> But he hasn't really taken into account the fact that if there is no God, the whole framework has to fall apart. Uh, but at the same time, Nietzsche is saying that the framework has fallen apart, and and the idea of a of a secular world in which you just you you have like a Jesus, like it's like a program. Uh, the program is the way the world is and the way we perceive it, and then you have a Jesus add-on that does a slight modification to it. But basically, the program's the same. That's I'm not sure that's. That's part of the problem that we have is the disconnect because when Christ comes in, he's not an add-on to the rest of your life. He's the king who transforms your entire life, including the framework. Sure. I'm just looking for Joel to pick up right here. <laughs> it's your turn, oh, Joel. Okay. <laughs> so so one of the things that, that um we've talked about with this idea of, of value framing things, uh, you know, like Travis said, when, when, you know, when God is removed, it, it's not just that the framework is modified a little bit, but it, it falls apart. And the, the problem that uh, Travis and I talk about a lot, I mean, you'll, you'll, if you listen to our podcast, you'll hear it time and time again, is that, that we, it's not enough to just change our beliefs, but we have to change the way we, we see the world, the, the, change the, 
the things we value or change the way we value the world and the things in the world um, such that we, we, I mean, the, the goal of the Christian life is to see the world like Jesus does, because if we see the world like Jesus does, value the things that he values, our actions will naturally flow from that. Um, and so it's, it's not enough to change beliefs. It's not enough to change actions. Both of those helped, can help change our, the way we see things. But if we're not, but if all we're trying to do is just do what we think we have to do so that we can say that we're Christian, the beliefs and the actions are not going to, to make us like Christ. Um, which that should be the, the, the goal of the Christian life. Um, you know, for, you know, my growing up, I felt like so much of what was taught was, was, you know, like, like we've talked about this, this belief plus action. And while that's not false, it's, it's also less than what I think the, the full life that Christ has promised us looks like, um, you know, Christ says that his burden is, is, is easy and his yoke is light. And, you know, I think we often feel that, that it's not that way. And I think the, the reason we, we feel it's not that way is because we're trying to do the work uh, with the wrong frame. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's like we're trying to, to you know, put the nails, you know, in a board with a saw. Well, uh, uh, yeah, if you're doing it that way, that's going to be really difficult. You need to use the hammer. And, and that's the, the, the life that Christ has promised us. Um, in, in, if we can change the way we see the world and, um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I think we too often Christians have, have missed that. And so the world looks at us and says, these guys are busting their butts and, and it doesn't seem like they're, they're getting anywhere. Like what, what, why should we listen to them? Yeah. And, and, if, if you read more of Charles Taylor in that secular, the secular age book, he, he's talking about how there's a loss. What you have, what happens after modernity is a loss of, of the importance of transcendence. Essentially importance of transcendence means the importance of the big questions, the theological questions, the questions of purpose, right. really all that becomes purpose, your purpose now. And you combine this with like a weird Darwinian kind of approach. You're, it's really is get what you can get. That's right in front of you. And then the next step is get what you get right in front of you. And there's no ultimate purpose. So, and we all function that way, right? And But what I think, not going too deep in this, because I don't understand enough of it, What the picture that I have within me is, are we really more secular than we realize as a church? Like this, whatever, that we're, we're less likely to think about the transcendent reality of Jesus as being a real thing. When I mean real, I mean physically, spiritually a real thing. I've told you before, Travis and Joel, I've mentioned this before that a lot of times when before I teach or before I preach, I make the I make a a at least a mention of the fact that Jesus is real. And everybody's like, Amen, Amen. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Jesus is actually real. Like physically, he's some space in place. He's a, he's in a locale. I don't know what that means, but we realize that when we say Jesus is Lord, he's he's somewhere on a throne. 
and and they just get taken back like well of course that's why we're all here and i'm like no i don't think you understand like do you really understand that he physically came here walked and has has done something that nobody else has ever done before which is God the Father raised him up and he's got a new body. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to get to is this lower level framework that we're not even conscious of. And it's that lower level framework that's keeping us from from connecting the propositions to our behavior. Does that does that make sense? Yes. Like and because I've... things are bubbling up from 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 them that's shared universally in our culture and they're battling with that at that level. Yeah. I think I think there's so so uh, I mean I've often talked to youth about this, and it uh, I, I tie it in a lot with uh, Plato and his battle with the Sophists. But we tend to believe uh, we have a tendency to to believe that happiness, for example, happiness is found in getting the things that I want, and being being obedient to God is sacrificing the things that I want, and. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly how to describe the framework, but you'd say it's it's almost like we believe ourselves to be animals who are fulfilled by grabbing the thing that's right before us, not by holiness. Holiness doesn't fulfill us and give us, give us, ha- I know a lot of Christians don't like the word happiness. They want to replace it with joy. And when Christians talk about joy, I often think what they're talking about is not being happy, but what I mean is like that we're, we're, we find fulfillment in getting the things that getting the things that we want, but we have to do it within the framework of the constraints of the law. And if you think about that, what, what that's saying is we're pursuing the exact same things as our non as our unbelieving friends. We just don't get quite as much of it because we're, we got to be good people. Sure. Right. And we you know, we lose a little sleep on Sunday mornings. We lose a little bit of time by going to church. We lose a little bit of money by giving our tithes. Um, we lose a little bit of fun by not being able to watch, you know, that or say that or whatever. Um, but essentially we're the same as the world. We just have a little bit less and then hopefully we'll get paid back in the afterlife with a bunch of extra stuff. Right. But you think about it, that the whole framework is established by the view that we are creatures, creatures of our, you might say our gut, right? Where we pursue, we try to get fulfillment, but we're just, we're just held back just a little bit by the law of God. But but that's not what we are. Right? That's I mean the Darwinian notion that we are that there is no telos, that there is no perp that purpose is illusory or it's a delusion that's created by evolutionary processes to get us to reproduce, essentially. And really what it's about is reproduction. Love is just about reproduction. Eating is about reproduction. It's all about eventually getting your DNA to reproduce. Um that framework we've absorbed that without even knowing it because we ourselves think that we're fulfilled and and the, the reason why why it's it's so appealing is partly because it's exactly how we experience life right we experience life as i'm fulfilled when i get this or that you know this or that other th- whatever whatever it happens to be i'm not fulfilled in being or doing i'm fulfilled in getting sure but i wonder i wonder if it's always been kind of that way like we always want to say, well, this is all a modern in because we're products of an in pre and well, an industrial society that's overly ra- ra- rational. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I'm I'm thinking about the stories of the Bible where people get freaked out when they see the angels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like maybe part of the fall is the fact that 
we can we do can arise up to certain beliefs but when they become reality and we're faced with them we're like oh crap you know because you see the same actions and characters in scripture when they when the veil is lifted and they see the transcendent other you know spiritual reality whatever that is and they all fall on their feet like oh crap i mean when jesus came he walked like that you know he was doing strange crazy stuff because the world of the spiritual and physical if you want to use those two terms they're coming together the way that they were in eden right the only difference being in this world that we're living in is disenchanted at least in the pagan world it was an enchanted world right there was still these stories that had meaning and called to something otherworldly and well and those stories encompassed our lives right like yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we we found meaning within these stories that were larger than us and we knew where we were in those stories yes. now we're totally disenchanted Mm-hmm. Like we're we're now you have two different kinds of people. You have the people that just totally embrace the 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 kind of nihilistic notion of this is all there is, right? And the things that go along with that. But then you have the regular people who are pulled in transcendence always towards movies and shows and you know, whether it's Marvel or Lord of the Rings or all these things because or political they're movements. Or political yeah. movements where they want to find not only purpose but they want to find their place in an enchanted story mm-hmm. because this, I mean, this very Lewis kind of idea of I want to be in a, in a real fable, you know, or a real, what did he call it? A real myth. Cause my deep down inside, whatever it is that God has created in me is pulling me towards an enchanted world. And what's different now is that's back then it's not, I don't want to make much of too much about us being different than them back in, you know, whenever before in the industrial age, I think the difference is with the, just this pull to disenchant everything that's around us. And I think communism is a huge product of that. Totally disenchant everything. Yeah. <laughs> and But there's a natural pull where we can't be that way. But they present a new te- telos. Right? Well, you do this all the time, and I'm sure Joel does it. And, like, my job, I feel like, as a pastor and teacher is to place you in the story and then remind you of the story mm-hmm. and then remind you that it's a true myth, that, that this story was real and it happened in historical, but it's also otherworldly and odd and enchanted and beautiful and those things i think are just as important to awaken the senses of the church right and i have to do that in a baptist context because we don't have liturgy liturgy pushes you towards those things but when you're in a non-liturgical church you even you have another hurdle right which is how do i enchant you with the word well because that's what i got sola scriptura you know the baptist world you got that and you have the ordinances you know, well, we have to in, almost make those enchanted by putting you in its place. Like you're sharing these things with Jesus. The act itself you're sharing. This is like a big cosplay. I mean, every Sunday, well, every Sunday we dress up and we act the part of what Jesus did. When we leave the church, we're acting the part as because Jesus asked us to be his disciples. Mm-hmm. So in other words, act like me. So we're one big cosplay, you know. And then when I say it that way, they're like, oh, yeah, I could see that. And I'm like, then why didn't you see that to begin with? I don't, I don't get it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's the heart of why in the world that I have lived in and tried to be a part of, it's so su- uber intellectual and it doesn't move to behavior. Or often it's behavior without, without any grounding. Yeah, or, so or, like, yeah, sure. you need to stop doing that. And, 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 and repla- I mean, do I have something to replace it with? No, just stop. Just stop, because somebody else told us to stop. Yeah. Well, well, if if you look back to the early church, you know they were living 
completely different story than than what everyone else was living in. And it was clear they were living a different story, and people were drawn to this new, different story that they were living in, and in a way that you know th- that you 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 kill them, and more people want to be like them, even though they know they're probably going to die. Okay. Um, I mean, what you know when 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 did the ch- church stop living a different story than the rest of society? Mm. No, that's a fabulous question. I mean, and, and you think about particularly here in the South, right? Or I mean, I grew up in a, Joel and I both grew up in small towns in Indiana that were heavily Christian, and there's a strong alignment between the local culture. And you're talking about the, the social capital of being in a church. Well, when the when the culture is considered Christian, you don't need to live a different life, right? I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the the American dream and being a Christian are one and the same. I mean, I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek because they're, they're clearly not. Well, this is what we're wrestling with now, right? right? When the questions of politics and who to vote for and who not to vote for. I mean, the entire American story is about not something's not right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you say you live this way, yet you have slaves or you say this way and you treat a certain sect right. of people different. But there's always the, at least there's freedoms to call out those inconsistencies, which we, we right. hey, totally agree with. And I, I yeah. want to be I want to be careful. I'm not I'm not using Christianity to say America's dumb and we should all become oh, no, like I know North Korea or some sure. nonsense like that. But what I but I'm just saying that there's Christianity is not like anything and it, I don't think Christianity can be can be um be incarnated into a human uh ruled uh governmental system. I think the only way Christianity can ever exist in a well, I mean, Joel and I might have an argument about this. I don't know. Um, put into a human human controlled system is when that human is also fully God. <laughs> so Jesus, the King, right? And sure, so, yeah. Um, uh, and so in in any any society, any culture is naturally prone toward this the the brokenness of sinful nature, um, and becomes a git culture. In fact, I think that's what Cain's name actually means. Something like git. Because Eve says, I got me a man. With the help of the Lord, I got me a man. Or something like that. And uh, Except with probably better grammar. Um, and Cain is derived from the idea of getting. Which it is means acquired. Acquired. And right. he becomes the first, you know, he kills his brother. He's a getter. He's a getter. He's a go-getter. <laughs> yeah. Cain <laughs> is a go-getter. Look, we talk about that before. In the in order to flourish in the broken world, most of the time it's about will. Yeah, it's about power and will because power and will are like a daggum arrow. Well, let me let, let me ask Joel a question. I'm okay, gonna, I'm going to put him on the spot. So, uh, uh, the idea: what is the what needs to change in one's value framework to become? To change your view that getting stuff fulfills me versus, or what, what's the other option? What's the Christian, what's the Christian framework? Like what fulfills us and what changes it? What has to change in my perspective about the world to, to change from getting more stuff fulfills me, whether that's more money, bigger, whatever trucks down here. Um, it, it could also be getting a good reputation uh, getting honored by whatever the, the the acquiring of things. What needs to change to become one 
to become to be fulfilled like Jesus who got nothing. At least not until I, he rose from the dead. <laughs> well, I, I I think I think the alternative is is love and community. And not just the we get together and talk about surfacey things community, but the we're involved in each other's lives community. I I care about you like I care about myself, and not just in in a uh, you know fluffy words kind of way, but but where I will say hard things to you, and when you say hard things to me, I listen and I because I care because I know you care. Um, we we live lives that are not about what we can get, but almost what we can, can give. And I'm not talking materialistically. Um, I'm not, I'm, I mean, you know, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, you know, sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And I, I, I'm glad I'm not the rich young ruler. At least I'd like to think I'm not. Um, But there's, there's an element of, of living our lives, not for ourselves. Um, but living our lives to help bring out the value in other people. Um, you know, because you, you look at what at the way Jesus lived, and everywhere he went, he was he was kind of turning upside down the the way that that people thought the value that value worked. You know, the the people in charge obviously have value, and you know, Jesus is super critical of them all the time. And, and it's the people that aren't valued by the society that, that Jesus is, is investing in, that he's, he's changing their lives. He's, he's doing, you know, great works through them. Um, you know, it, there's something, there's, you know, Jesus says that, that, the, that this power and will mindset is is the wrong way and he 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 almost flips it upside down and and says you know we we have have it backwards you know we where where true power is found is through love and service and sacrifice um not through having the ability to make people do what you want them to do so so the the we we have to remove the focus from ourselves and, and find ways to, to try to be like Jesus. And that's, and I, I think it's in, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, that, that, you know, everyone's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's really important. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what does that really mean? I mean, Kierkegaard wrote 600 pages in works of love on, you know, just trying to get at what that phrase is about. And, and I'm not sure that, that, you know, he, he, he did much more than scratch the surface of it. You know, he, when we think about what does it mean to love our neighbor, to really love our neighbor as ourselves, you know, it's, it, it, I think it changes everything. I don't know. I don't know about you, Joel, but I love everyone. No, he, do, he does not. <laughs> I've seen Travis in real life. Oh wait, wait, wait. Shh. And, and and in the South, he he he's like a he he stands out. So well, that's because we won. At least at I least can. you're courteous, you know. And uh, we're courteous, but we'll just stab you in your back. <laughs> right. um, when it comes to Jesus, though, the rich young ruler is an interesting story because the rich young ruler it says he loves him, 
But the language that's used for love is it's almost like this action verb where you can see Jesus putting his hand around him. Like almost it's almost love and pity, but it's not really a pity. It's more like, boy, if you would just let it go, you would flourish like you almost got it. But you're so far away. And, it, you know, Mark has this interesting quality where there's always these comparisons. Right. You're in my mind, if you know, and I might be totally wrong. I think you're comparing the rich young ruler with Bartimaeus, the beggar. Those are supposed to be compared. And in between them, you have these imbeciles called the disciples who are not getting any of it. Right. <laughs> and what Jesus is, and in to, when I went to RZIM, um, Robbie Zacharias Institute this week, and, and this is a, you know, I'm just, you, know, you should be impressed. Right. That just yeah. name dropped. Uh, they, they had a chapel there with this guy who was just excellent. He talked about the rich young ruler, but then he compared it to the woman who poured the oil. And then he compared her to Judas. And he said, the woman with the oil who knew her possessions, but she, she knew that the price and the value was in Jesus, right? And Judas knew the price on Jesus too, but it came with, but he knew, he knew the value and the value was a certain amount of silver, which later he just jettisons and says, holy crap, I'm, what have I done? Right. And it cost him, it cost him his life. Um, but I, I like what you said, Joel, because the woman who gave the perfume of the nard, which is interesting, the nard that she put on his head, you remember the disciple said how much money this is and could go to the poor? Well, the guy made the poor in RZIM, he said, but he was poor. You forget Jesus had nothing. He yeah. was the poor, and he was the poorest of the poor because he, he came that, from the highest to come to the lowest. Yeah. He lost the most. But there was something about her. Remember, he promised her, he said, from now on, you will be associated with me. You'll be associated with me. So in other words, we might not know her name, but we know her act. Yeah, yeah. And her. And you remember what Jesus said? He says, essentially saying, this is beautiful. And this guy's point was, here is God incarnate saying, you're worthwhile so much that you did a beautiful act that caught me by surprise. Jesus can be caught by surprise. That's the thing that's amazingly beautiful yeah. about this thing. It happens it, whenever somebody shows up with great faith. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Yeah, like the centurion who's a Gentile, who everybody yeah. else thinks is just a know-nothing, you know, in his own right, who has power and will yeah. and all those things. But he said, but he was surprised. You can either be surprised that way or in a bad way, like being surprised by his hometown. So he has to leave and can't do any miracles. Yeah. Right. But mm -hmm. Jesus being surprised by the act of beauty that this person gave to him with this perfume was something because she understood what he was about to do. She had the wisdom and the knowledge. And apparently she walked around and where she was the only one who heard him say, I'm going to die. And apparently nobody else is getting it but her. Right. So she's like, well, what can I do to honor his honor? Whatever it is he's about to do. And this pure act just caught him by surprise, mm -hmm. right? And what Joel is reminding me is she was given that wisdom because she was in community, she loved the Lord, and she knew that her possessions were didn't have as much value as who Jesus was. Yeah. And this that's the extravagance of when, when Joel talks about loving our neighbors, loving, our, loving your neighbor uh, and loving God, it's this sort of... It's an extravagance. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a looking at the person to see how useful they are. Right? Sure. So like, like I had, I had a student in one of my classes who is somewhat inspired to go do some research. And so he ran around and started interviewing people in Birmingham about happiness because he was taken by Aristotle's view of happiness. But it ended up leading him talking to a bunch of Christians yeah. and trying to determine. He he got all of them except one lady messed it up. One old lady messed up his the uh, a, a perfect. 
terrible score for Christians, where all of them claimed that they they were really unconcerned if Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was the means to get to heaven. That's how you said Judas understood Jesus's worth. I think. I think we have a like Jesus is the way I get to heaven. Well, what if Jesus isn't there? Well, the old lady said this: if Jesus isn't there, it's not heaven. Jesus to be in His presence is paradise. Well, isn't that what that's what I'm getting back to with believability? How can we get people back to be more like the woman with the perfume or the centurion, where their believability was not only were they hearing him, they were they were well. We'll just say a little bit of imagination here. The woman that gave him the perfume walked with because she was. He had healed her, mm-hmm. and she saw something in him that was worth giving her life to. The the Bartimaeus, the blind man, w- wouldn't wouldn't shut up. Everybody's like, "Be quiet! You're a no nothing. You will always be a no nothing, and you you make your money by other people gracing you with their money. How dare you call out to Jesus?" But he was the only one who understood. Mm-hmm. Right. He was the only one where this was when believability meant for him meant all that was in front of him. Remember the cloak that he that he shed more than likely went to his lap. Right. And they held in his lap what people would walk by when they're going to Jerusalem and, and throw in money. This was his trade. This is what all he knew. Yeah. Right. So when Jesus said, bring him to me, making the disciples get low and go get him like he's being called. He's being a he's being called to be a disciple. Yeah. So when they're getting all excited, he's called you. In other words, you're going to be like us. You know that blind man's. Like, I don't want to be like you. <laughs> you're, you're dumb. You know. But he. What did he do? Do you remember what what he did? It says he threw off his cloak. Do you know what that image really is? He did what the rich young ruler couldn't do. It's both about possessions, mm-hmm. because the 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 fact remains: if he was healed, this guy has no trade. He has no skill. He's probably in a family of paupers. Bartimaeus, Craig Keener says, might have, since it was Timaeus Bartimaeus, he was, could have been a son of a blind man. So this is a family trade of being blind beggars, and he's giving that up for Jesus because the minute he gets sight, what is he going to do? It's not like he was a carpenter. Right. But he believed Jesus so much that he says, give me sight, and then he followed him up. Now, we don't know what happened to the dude. Right, that's one of the Easter eggs we're going to find out later. Right. right, the real true Easter eggs, where we get to see what happened to these fellows. But what what's remarkable for me is what what kind of believability does this, does this person have that I can be, I want, and I want to help promote to others. You know, where ideas and all that are fun to think about, but I want those to move us towards being Christ-like, right. and that's working in the world like we used to work. In Eden, in strange and weird ways. Right, and I think uh, if I can make just one one reference to apologetics, uh, one of the interesting things about uh, about applying this idea to apologetics is, uh, let's see if I can explain this. But yeah, the way that we talk about God is often God is a God is a piece of furniture in the universe. He's just a really important piece of furniture. But he's just like the rest of us. He's just a piece of furniture in in the entire universe that we argue to try to we try to convince other people to believe in this extra proposition there is a God. But other than that the framework stays the same. But God is the framework. 
there's a sense in which God God is God is not a a is not one proposition among many. God is what gives all the other propositions shape. And the even the way that we talk about God, you can't prove God like you can prove, you know, that there's unicorns or that there's I don't know narwhals since they're weird creatures. Um, you can't prove God in that same in the same sort of way because that's not what God God is not just another thing among the universe. God, in a sense, gives shape to all that one sees. Yeah, but see, it's that view that Charles Taylor would say, that's what secular is. He defines it three ways, but this last one is really what secular, what we're living in, is where you denying God, or in other words, transcendence is a possibility. Up until now, nobody thought that way. There was always a transcendent. There was always something enchanted. But now what you have is the is now a world where it's possible for you not to believe in it. Right. It, in transcendence, not just gods and God, you know, but something otherworldly that's beyond us, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 and that's what he says is different. And what I would say is that's the disenchantedness of the modern world yeah. that I think the church has bought into and it actually functions that way. Yeah. We have a, <coughs> we have a very, I mean, I go to a fairly liturgical church, sure. an Anglican church, and I still have a hard time. The sacraments are weird. It's weird. It's weird what we do on Sunday mornings. Sure. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to line up. Uh, line up with my normal every normal everyday life. Um, and when if I go to a Christian, I talk about you know you hear stories about people being raised from the dead in Africa. Mention that to any American Christian, like psh, whatever. Yeah, they're weird Africans. Yeah. What do they know? They're, they're poor, so they're wrong. I mean, they wouldn't say it quite that way, but that's what they say. You know, they're not, they don't have technology. Or that Jesus has to deal with them that way because they're not first world yet. I mean, that could be, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, <laughs> because they ain't got what we uh, got. I'm feeling a little convicted. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they don't have the health care that we have. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that the transcendent is not really, that, that we're not within this framework of the transcendent, I mean, that's, when we preach, our goal is to give some application points, right? Give, you know, start off with a joke, end with uh, three points of application so that people can, you know, biblical principles for inv- for investing your money wisely. And then they can go home and, you know, try not to cu- try not to do this as much stuff as your neighbor's doing. Sure. There's something about heaven afterwards. Uh, but on that, everything, everything is the same. Sure. There is no enchantment in the world. The world's not full of mystical wonder and beauty that draws us. That's that's a beginning reflection of what Joseph Pieper would call the be well, Christian tradition would call the beatific vision, the, the vision, the blessed vision of God, which we should slowly be growing to see more and more. That's why our art is usually crap. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Christian it's art is crap. Self Christian art is propaganda. Well, yeah, because it's 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 work. It, well, yeah, I mean, we're, it's, because, disen, because, it's well, disenchanted. We don't believe beauty points to God. We believe beauty is something that you use to get people to believe the right. Now our podcast is called Rabbit Trails, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, wandering but, but, in rabbit trails. But, but there there is a there is a close connection. If instead of beauty point beauty and goodness and grandeur and 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 everything from chivalry to beauty, uh, because that doesn't point to God. We use that to stir up your emotions to get you to then agree with a set of propositions. That's what you. That's just a commercial. It's mm. propaganda. 
Mm. Right. Uh, but beauty itself points to God. You can write a song that is just beautiful and like truly beautiful or truly fills a person with awe. No lyrics. And it's reflecting God. I start throwing in lyrics that try to get you to convince you to believe in God. You know, God's not dead. Can, can I talk bad about God's not dead? Sure, I can take it out. Um, <laughs> you just get a long beat. <laughs> yeah, I can edit it out. I'm going to put but, another movie in you there. Know. You know what I'm talking about. Avengers 2. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I had to watch, because I was teaching apologetics and philosophy and, and a little bit of Bible at, at a Bible college, and so I, I needed to watch it because it came out while I was there. And I'm like, you know, the philosophy professor is a, a jerk, and he ends up, and it's cool because we get a double whammy. He both becomes a Christian and dies. So he's like <laughs> humiliated and killed and also saved. So that's cool um, because his physical life doesn't really matter. Um, a little Gnosticism tossed in there. And, you know, the it just it, it's just not how w- the world works. If it reflected the Gospels, you know who would die at the end? The Christian kid hmm. would have died at the end. Not, not the professor. He would have walked around triumphantly like the Romans and the Jewish leaders did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's there's there's something that just doesn't feel. It's like we're we're, we're trying to. I don't know how to explain this. Maybe Joel can can help me here, even though he might be wondering what I'm talking about. Like we're trying to force things to to try to get people to believe something rather than allowing allowing transcendence to fill real life. We're trying to take real life and force it to to act a certain way in our stories and our music, rather than allowing the transcendence to. Mm-hmm. To I mean, Joel, you rescue me here. Okay, so I, I'm going to tangentially get back to to your to your point, but I I took a class in my master's program that I think kind of explains where, as just a broad culture, we are. And it was a class in analytic aesthetics. Oh, ouch! Now, yeah, I, so <laughs> it, it was it, it was trying to reduce beauty down to you know certain uh, ratios or, or you know all these different things that su- such that beauty is is something we can clearly explain, and we we don't treat beauty with with transcendence, and so when. When, as a society, we've lost transcendence, we then want to use what we used to connect with transcendence in ways to help get those, help get people convinced of our side. And you know, we we think that that if we, if we just teach them enough that they're gonna that it's gonna make the difference. But I I read about this this um, experiment that was done where they did, had a control group and then another a separate group. And the, the separate group for a decade was educated on the harms of smoking and the problems that result from smoking and all this kind of stuff. And, they, and the control group was not, did not get this you know, direct special education. The control group had uh, ended up after a decade, 25.7% of them were smokers. Now, the group that got this decade of education, 25.3% of them were smokers. <laughs> a decade of education of all this knowledge 
made a 0.4% difference in whether someone smoked or not. Now, what I'm getting at is we as a society, not just Christians, but Christians participate in this, this as well, we think that knowledge gets the job done. And so anything we use with beauty, with transcendence, we, 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 we're using it to get people to knowledge. Right. And that's, that's the wrong way to do it. You know, with, with beauty, you see beauty and you know it's beauty. Now, if someone asks you to explain it, you can usually come up with reasons, but it's, but it's not that these reasons ex- fully explain why it's beautiful, but with the reasons kind of point out the beauty to try and help the person see the beauty as well. Hmm. And, and I think if our, if our goal in, in apologetics with our arguments is just to get people to say, yep, that's a good argument, we've missed the point. But the arguments are supposed to, to be pointers to Jesus, to pointers to God that get people to see who God is, to see, see who Jesus is and, and, and not to just have these these you know arrows in their quiver, but 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 to to be things that have helped them see God, to see Jesus, and and that is what changes our changes lives. Oh, I that, think that's good. Well, all right, guys, this is uh, fifty-two minutes. So um, this is fantastic. We need to do this again. This is the kind of stuff you're going to get with their podcast. This is the kind of stuff. These are the conversations we'd like to foster and create with Tactical Faith. Listen, uh, I've had Tactical Faith since 2011. I helped start this and organize this nonprofit together. Uh, we're trying out new things. You know, we've just spent the last two years just thinking things through. Trust me, me and Travis have been in a lot of conversations together over lunch trying to figure out what this thing is. Um <laughs> But the reality is it's functioning as just as an organization that really wants to foster these kind of questions and help move the church towards beauty, truth, and goodness and, you know, and not operate in ways that, that are, you know, that point to things like power <laughs> and, and understanding that significance is defined in, a, in, in hopefully a kingdom way. But trust me, that's hard. <laughs> And that's hard when most of us in tactical faith are giving of our own time and money. Listen, this is volunteer right now. And all of the three guys you heard, we all have different responsibilities and things. Um, we would ask if you get something from our podcast and the content that we're creating and all three of us are, are doing for tactical faith, please ask that you would visit our website at tacticalfaith.com. Shoot us an email at info at tacticalfaith.com. You know, we're a 501c3, you know, so if you desire to get some of your taxes off, if, if money is that big of an issue for you, and <laughs> then, you know, we got that too. So there's some beautiful music. In the yeah, I, I need some way, I need a better way of manipulating people, right. you know, um, but we need help. You know, we're not asking for $100,000, even though if you have it, bring it. Um, but we want to do more of these things. So please go to our, our website, tacticalfaith.com. We're trying. We're trying our best to make this crazy thing work, and we're having a lot of fun doing it. So, hey, guys, thank you, Joel. Thank you, Travis, for coming on. Thank you for what you do for Tactical Faith, and uh, we will do this again. <laughs>